One of the things I did with EPA is uh, you have states, many, many states, most of the states have so much water. You know, it comes out of heaven, right? The water pours down and you have it. It's there. It's got to go wherever it goes, into the oceans, whatever. It's not like a big problem. Now, in some states, they have a problem. You know, you have some desert areas and all, and for that, it's okay. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 45 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. As the tumult around Donald Trump continues, there has been a lot of discussion about how the various legal processes might conflict and perhaps influence the nearly inevitable general election contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. A lot of data seems to indicate that not much about the contours of the race will be influenced very much by this or maybe any anything. As we've discussed in this place before, the combination of the increased partisanship in the country and the fact that we've seen this exact matchup before reduces the variability of the outcome significantly. I mean, the fact is we've been here before. The New York Times recently did a poll that fell squarely where virtually every other one has since the race is modeled. They came up with a 43-43 tie. That is, because give or take a percent or two, we are a 45-45-10 nation with a handful of 45-45-10 states, 45 Republican, 45 Democrat, and 10 who seem to be the ones that decide elections. The 10 in those few states, that's who's going to make the call. So will some of the 45 that prefer Democrats and hate Donald Trump, will they waver and tell pollsters that they're nervous about Joe Biden's age, for example? Sure. Will an increasing number of Republicans who like to talk about the Biden crime family suddenly become disenchanted with Donald Trump for his hundreds of indictments? All right, maybe. But there's little reason to believe that focusing anywhere but on that 10% in the so-called middle is very useful. And we know a bit about those 10 percenters, as we'll call them. We know they are not enthusiastic about Donald Trump and his problems. We know that they're not all that crazy about Joe Biden, but they don't have nearly the negative perception of Joe that they do of Trump. And perhaps most importantly, we know how they break in this exact matchup. Because we just ran this race, as I said, and those folks broke for Biden. But today, let's look at the issue that is number one to those magic ten. The economy, or as some polls like to talk about it, economy and the inflation. In a way, Trump and Biden are trying to craft mirror image ideas of how they manage the economy. Trump says, things were great until I was undone by a crisis. Don't judge me on that crisis. And Biden says, things were so much better now than when I came in and was handed an economy in crisis. So don't judge me either on the crisis, just judge me on how I've done to get us out of this ditch. In a way, the subtext of both arguments is what we really should know. The economy is mostly outside of any president's control. A good argument could be made that the economic prosperity that Donald Trump inherited from Barack Obama was riding high from the slow and steady recovery from the financial crisis of 2008, and that Trump took trend lines that were already in the positive and, if anything, slowed them down a bit. Job growth, for example, averaged 2.6 million jobs a year under President Obama's second term, and it was 2.2 million a year in Trump's first three years. Again, the first three years, not counting COVID. In some ways, Trump's benefited in the way that Obama tried to get out of the fiscal crisis of 2008, sort of on the cheap. The expansion that started in mid-2009 after that financial crisis was historically slow. Trump said he would change that. His first budget in 2017 projected a growth rate under Trump's policies would be 3% by 2020 and stay there. Trump often said it would be even higher. The growth rate did rise, but not that much. Even some of Trump's advisors said in interviews that Obama had failed to deliver the boom that usually happens early in an expansion and extend, instead it created kind of a long, slow one just in time for Trump to get modest credit for it. Trump could also correctly claim the percentage of work 
working age people who had a job or were looking for one fell to its lowest level since the 1970s. And then came COVID. On the Biden side, there's the obvious argument that Biden inherited an economy that was historically disrupted. You could argue that he had nowhere to go but up. Sure, that's one argument. But the residual effects of supply chains being screwed up, the dramatic uptick in demand almost overnight that led to spikes in fuel usages and prices, inflation exploded under Joe Biden. Now, in the category of no president truly being in charge of the economy, President Biden's economy was slightly, a tiny bit disrupted by, I don't know, a superpower that extracts the large portion of the world's oil. Oil, invading a country that's responsible for a large portion of the world's wheat. And all of this did happen at a time when there was an outbreak of avian flu that drove up the prices of eggs. So Biden is the 9% inflation president. Biden is the $5 a gallon gas president. He's also the no baby formula president, if you remember that. Now things seem to be getting better. I should say seem, by a lot of objective measures, they are getting better. So much so that Biden is now taking a calculated risk of not running from the economy as an issue or blaming the world of reasons that I just listed, but pointing to his very real accomplishments as the reason things are better. Unemployment rate is 3.5%. The U.S. has added an average of 312,000 jobs every month for the last year. GDP growth has been two points or higher for a year. Inflation is down to 3.2%, down from over 9% last year and very close to the Fed's goal of 2%. And inflation has subsided. Real wages, that is, what paychecks will actually buy have actually risen. And meanwhile, economic growth has accelerated, consumer spending is still solid. Inflation is coming down without the crash landing in large part because the Fed's rate increases designed to slow the economy and really stop wage growth and cause higher unemployment. Those are being offsetted by Bidenomics' massive public investments in infrastructure, semiconductors, wind and solar energy, and manufacturing. They've also put strict limits on Chinese imports the Biden administration has, something that no doubt has helped kneecap our primary economic rival, China. Chinese trade has been tanking, with their exports are down 12% in June, and their imports are down 7%. This isn't all. The Biden administration has added other kind of critical ingredients. The threat, and in some cases the reality, of tough antitrust enforcement, and the pro-labor NLRB, which helps workers organize for their rights. As a purely political matter, Biden... Bidenomics, I can't even say it, is not popular, meaning that folks are not happy with the economy and they're not happy with Joe Biden, make no mistake about it. Only about 20% of the country seems to think the economy is good and less than 45% think that Biden is any good. In August, there was a Quinnipiac poll. And when you took a look at it, it said 71% of Americans, 71% described the economy as not so good or poor, and just 3% say it's excellent. But this reminds me of a little of Obamacare in more than one way. Like in this case, there was a deep and hard to shake conventional wisdom in the media about the wisdom of the Affordable Care Act, the politics around it, and what it would mean politically rather than substantively. The coverage was all about punditry, who has the votes for what and who's standing in the way. The Republicans were calling it Obamacare from the jump, believing that branding it would hang this unpopular idea of national health care around his neck and ultimately defeat him. My idea at the time was to adopt the same language, call it Obamacare. After all, I reasoned that this thing would, if it was a bust, it was going to be a bust and there'd be nowhere to hide. But more importantly, if we really believed in what we were doing, we should not run away from being associated with it. I recall getting a tongue lashing from the White House political director for this. You know, they, they did not believe calling it Obamacare was a very good idea at the time. And it should also be said that I was chastised by Nancy Pelosi for talking about it so much on Fox News and doing so many town hall meetings about it. Anyway, it took for a while to turn around. And when it did, it's now Democrats who talk about Obamacare and Republicans who have meekly dropped plans to overturn it. So what's the parallel to Bidenomics? For one thing, the media and the so-called experts narrative about inflation and the inevitability of a recession is a deep thing and it's hard to let go of. 
media stories interviewing people on the street and checkout lines of supermarkets complaining about the high cost of living or the requisite shot of the guy changing the gas pump price. And then they cut to an expert from an economics advisory firm or some bank predicting not if but when a recession would begin. So these same reporters who did all those stories and the same experts are now facing lower prices, strong economic growth, and job creation. Those same people are reluctant, either consciously or unconsciously, to say, oops, never mind. Not all of this has been about people not giving Biden credit, though. Joe Biden is not good at anything about messaging. He doesn't seem on top of things. He's not, I don't know, crisp in talking about just about anything. The very same concerns about whether Joe Biden is competent also translate into whether he should get credit for competent management of the economy. And then there's the fact that statistics about the economy are actually mostly leading indicators and polls and perceptions are slow laggers. Things are better. But just as it takes journalists and commentators a while to acknowledge it, voters are often slow to let go of a perception that they have. It's like crime statistics. Crime is down in New York City. It has been for months in a row, but polling, headlines, and the general perception of crime is not budging at all. So Bidenomics is a risky play, no doubt, especially when there's good evidence that almost nothing that happens in a Democratic administration will be reported favorably or received favorably by the 40% of the country who strongly identify as Republicans. This is reflected in a CNN poll where 54% of Republicans describe the economy as very poor, compared to just 15% of Democrats. And the latest job report showed a continued increase in the number of jobs, but many Americans don't see an improving employment picture. The Economist YouGov poll said 6 in 10 regarded unemployment as a very or somewhat serious national problem when unemployment is very low. Just 24% said the jobless rate dropped last month when it's dropped for months. Only 34% say the number of jobs is increasing, though that has been the case in the government numbers every month since the economy began recovering from COVID-19. But returning to the idea of who the target audience is for anything right now, the open-minded parts of a handful of swing states, I think there is a message that I don't think that Biden has leaned into enough. And that is how greed has contributed to the challenge that American families face economically. Many Americans would feel better about the economy and their president if big corporations were paying their employees better and the CEOs were investing in benefits and working conditions instead of using their profits to buy back stock. I don't think populism comes very easy to Joe. But talk about a fight worth having. A new report by the Institute for Policy Studies analyzed the 100 public corporations with the lowest wages. This is in, in, two, in 2022. They found that these corporations, are groups that include many of the nation's biggest employers, CEO pay averaged $15.3 million and the median worker averaged $31,670 a year. That's a ratio of 603 to 1. Dollar Tree, a company that employs nearly 200,000 people, the median wage there is $14,702. Can you imagine that? The median wage. But its CEO, Michael Witinski, received uh, almost $14 million in total compensation last year. Over the last three years, the median wage of the Dollar Tree employee actually decreased by 4.4%. And the same period, their CEO got an increase of 2,400%. And the company, on top of everything, also spent $2 billion on stock buybacks, further boosting the value of the CEO's holdings. If you work for Dollar Tree... It's easy not to be happy about the state of the economy in spite of whatever nice report may have come out of economists at the Department of Labor. They are performing difficult, physically demanding work for little pay, and they're watching their labor further enrich millionaires and billionaires. Another example is Live Nation, the parent company of Ticketmaster. Their CEO received a total compensation of $140 million, and their av the median Live Nation employee was paid $26,000. And maybe a lot of Americans think the economy sucks because so many companies are buying back stock instead of investing in workers. Buying back stock, selling out workers. Maybe that can be Joe Biden's slogan. For the last two and a half years, the 90 lowest wage, low wage companies that were in this study spent $340 billion on stock buybacks. 
And just so you understand the economics here, by, by buying back the stock, they reduce the number that are publicly available and they artificially inflate the value of those stocks. And the CEOs, many of whom were paid in stock, and investors, they're the ones that benefit. Another example is Lowe's, a home improvement chain that you all know of, $35 billion in repurchasing stock over the last three and a half years. If they would have invested that in their 301,000 employees instead and given them bonuses, it would have been $46,000 in bonuses for each employee. Instead, Lowe's worker makes an average of $30,000 a year. So you can imagine how workers in those types of businesses see the statistics in the newspaper and say, you know what, the economy stinks, I don't care what they say. I mean, stock buybacks are essentially a transfer of wealth created by labor to the richest Americans. And you've heard about me rail about this issue on the podcast before. I'm raising it again to offer it as a way to do kind of Bidenomics plus. It's more than just stoking class resentment. There is a policy element to this in the Inflation Reduction Act. There was a tiny reform. They imposed a 1% excise tax on corporate stock buybacks. Now, buybacks surge with popularity, possibly uh, possibly, or probably because unlike dividends, which is another way to transfer profits to investors, buybacks are untaxed. But the current tax on stock buybacks which was set at 1% in the Inflation Reduction Act, is too low to change anything. And Biden has tried to, is proposing quadrupling that tax. Good idea. And speaking of that Inflation Adjustment Act, one of the three bills that are the ten poles of Bidenomics with the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Act, just yesterday they rolled out the first 10 drugs that the federal government are going to finally do the obvious thing to reduce prices, demand discounts from the pharmaceutical companies. Until now, the federal government, the world's most powerful buying pool, it's all the people who are in Medicare, has not used that market strength to negotiate lower prices for millions of people who get those drugs. Not only does it help those citizens who are on Medicare, but also the prices that are set for Medicare are also used by private insurance companies. I mean, this should remind voters which party is fighting to improve healthcare and reduce costs. The, is, is, the contrast is just what you want. Kind of Bidenomics, baby. Speaking about contrasts, before we end this segment, a brief review of the Trump record on the economy, since that's what elections are. President Trump campaigned as a billionaire businessman, a champion of the working class, with economic prowess and deal-cutting skills that politicians in Washington just didn't have. He summed up his position during the campaign. He says, I'll be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Yet Trump became the first president since Herbert Hoover during the Great Depression to depart office with fewer jobs in the country than when he entered. Trump's economic legacy was defined by his failure in leadership during COVID-19 that exacerbated the financial uh, downturn. He had domestic policies that overwhelmingly benefited the wealthy and international trade policies that hurt U.S. industry while simultaneously alienating whatever allies we still kept during his years. Mr. Art of the Deal ignored lessons that many economists have learned over 50 years, such as the importance of the independence of the Fed, using institutions like the World Trade Organizations, and he failed to achieve his own self-proclaimed goals of reducing the trade deficit with China, nor did he control the national debt, and nor did he strengthen the American Manufacturing Center. He did actually nothing that he promised. Now, as I said, Trump inherited an economy from the Obama administration that was expanding, and it continued to do so for the first three years of his presidency. While wage growth was slow or stagnant for most Americans, as it had been under Obama, unemployment continued to trend downward, and GDP continued to grow under Trump. The unemployment rate was 6.7% when he left office. It was 4.6% when he took office in 2017. The idea mentioned at the top that Trump wants COVID period to be seen as an act of God and not his fault. But hopefully any talk about Bidenomics includes the idea that we judge presidents on how they play the hand they were dealt. And if you want to blame Biden for inflation rate that was jacked up by a foreign war and COVID supply chain messes, then Trump gets blamed 
for how he handled COVID. The lack of leadership during the health crisis was not only deadly, with thousands of Americans dying every day, but also disastrous for the economy. And it wasn't inevitable. Other countries like South Korea were better able to control the spread of the virus. And as a result, Korean GDP fell only by about 1% when we fell by about 4%. Trump didn't take the virus seriously and actively undermine the practices that we needed at the time, like avoiding crowds and masking. Trump likes to tell the half story of how minority unemployment dropped during his administration, but only if you think he only served for three years and not four. The month he left, unemployment rate for white workers was 6% compared to 9.9 for black workers and 9.3 for Hispanic workers. Trump's economy favored the wealthy at the expense of lower-paid service workers employed by things like hotels and restaurants and hairdressers, businesses that required face-to-face contact. And when he did his big tax cut in 2017, major breaks for corporation wealthy individuals, the law reduced the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21%. This for a president who campaigned in 2016 as being the champion of the working person and campaigned on draining the swamp in Washington, the big tax cut was really only for the rich and the swamp. If you recall, the economy was actually doing pretty, as I said, was pretty doing pretty well at the time. This wasn't needed. And I would argue, and I hope that Biden would also argue, that we gave away trillions of dollars to the wealthy that we then didn't have when we needed it to fight COVID. We needed that money. This surely contributed to the inflation we saw after the COVID relief laws were passed. There was just too much money that was coursing through the economy. Remember the Trump record in response to the coronavirus crisis. Congress rallied quickly in March of 2020, and there was a $2.2 trillion relief package that Trump signed into law. As the virus continued to rage throughout the summer, Trump dragged his feet for months before passing a second relief package in the end of 2020. After Congress greenlit the $900 billion package, Trump delayed signing for nearly a week, asking for more concessions that were unrelated to the COVID crisis. Now, did corporations do better with the huge tax cuts and a reduction in regulations and anti-labor policies under Trump? Sure they did. But let's see how that plays today. The debt ballooned under Trump. The total went up by more than $7 trillion during his term. You heard Nikki Haley talk about that during the debate. The annual deficit under Trump ranks the third biggest increase relative to the size of the economy of any U.S. president. And did I also mention you also increased, not decreased, the trade deficit? I said that no president really controls the economy, but trade policy is where the president wields the most economic power, as Congress has over the years delegated negotiating authority increasingly to the executive branch. Ultimately, the tit-for-tat war that Trump waged with China was lost by us. I know it was a long time ago, but remember 2017? Art of the deal, my ass. With talks with the Chinese leaders broke down, Trump initiated a trade war by imposing tariffs on all imported washing machines and solar panels in early 2018. Then he announced 25% tariffs on steel imports and 10% tariffs on aluminum. And China, of course, retaliated with tariffs of up to 25% of more than 100 U.S. products, including soybeans and airplanes. The net result? By the end of Donald Trump's term, the trade deficit was larger in absolute terms than it was when he came into office. And beyond looking at the trade deficit data, to the extent that the tariffs that he put into place raise prices for goods. Remember, you put a tariff on something coming in from China. It's Chinese uh, Chinese products, but they're U.S. consumers. The policy wound up being a tax on ourselves. Then other countries also retaliated, reducing our exports, meaning that Trump lost the trade war coming and going. Now, the stock market did well under Trump. He even broke his post-election silence. Remember that? And uh, after he he went quiet after Election Day to hold a brief press conference when the Dow Jones broke 30,000. But even that was more about the Fed just pumping money. The stock market, the Dow Jones, rose by 56% during Trump's presidency. Pretty good. But it climbed 148 under Obama. And it climbed 229% under Clinton. But let's be fair. Let's compare first-term numbers. At the one-term line, the Dow climbed 73% under Obama, soared 105% under Clinton, and it rose, like I said, 56% under Trump's presidency. I think what the kids call that is mid. I think that's what Jordan would say. 
As compared to Biden, Trump is winning the Dow race. As of the 29th of June of each guy's terms, Trump was up 30, Biden up 16, and Barack was up 54. But it really is the Fed. If you lower interest rates by two and three percentage points, that'll give the stock market quite the boom. Under Biden, it has been one increase after another. So as we hear more about Bidenomics, it's not going to be one hand clapping. While a lot of people may need convincing that the economy is doing better, they'll also be reminded that what things were like when defendant number one was in charge. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony Anything. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So welcome back to Ask Anthony Anything. This is a part of the program where we clap back at something in the news or we answer a question. In this case, I want to talk a little bit about the way that we're seeing reportage and commentary around the indictments of Donald Trump. And each television station and each network is rolling out lawyers to help us understand this process, understand the documents. And one guy that's getting a great deal of attention, particularly on Fox News, is someone named Jonathan Turley. Take a listen. He insists that he does believe that Georgia could have been flipped with a recount. And the way that she portrayed that phone call uh, to Raffensperger, I think, is really evidence of the bias and unfairness of aspects of this indictment. You know, it is it makes perfect sense when you're challenging an election to say, you know, I only need around 11,000 votes. So if you do a statewide review, that's not a lot in a state like Georgia. That's not criminal. That's making a case for a recount. Now, Jonathan Turley has been around a while. He's a professor at GW University, and he's probably as close to a famous lawyer as we have in this country right now. But what he just said right there was either a lie, he is either just dumb, or he is being intentionally obtuse, or maybe he's just being greedy. And let me tell you what I mean. Now, if what he just said was this idea that the Rothensberger call with Donald Trump was this whole idea of Donald Trump lobbying for a recount, which makes it sound perfectly normal. And we've heard arguments like this before. The Basically, the argument is that Donald Trump was just advocating for what he thought was an incorrect count to be corrected. Now, I guess the best way to answer this line of questioning or this line of suggestion by Jonathan Turley, who, by the way, is a paid Fox News analyst, is to go back to an op-ed that Jonathan Turley wrote in November of 2020, right after the election. And this is just a paragraph from a, a sh- a, a, an op-ed called, America Should Welcome Review for Close Counts. And it is an op-ed about how asking for recounts is as American as anything. This is in November of 2020. And here's a paragraph that I think sums it up pretty well. We are finishing only the second of four stages in the election. After the voting stage, states enter the tabulation stage. We will soon begin the canvas stage in which local districts confirm their counts and can face challenges or recounts. Finally, there is the certification stage for which final challenges can be raised. He's exactly right in 2020. He's exactly right that we have a long history as articulated in the laws of the 50 states for how you vote, how you count, how you audit, how you certify. They're laws. And ultimately, those are laws that get enforced by the courts. You feel that your vote hasn't been counted or you feel that it's you've been disenfranchised, you can go to court and you can try to remedy that. And what 
Turley is suggesting is that when Donald Trump was advocating with Rathersberger that he was just looking for a recount, he would be making sense were he not to realize that the call to Rathersberger took place on January 2nd, 2021. The recount had been done three times. The court had certified the the state had certified its electoral college votes on December 7th under the safe harbor law that exists. They had recertified it three separate times. As a matter of fact, on December 7th, Rathersberger, in a public statement and a public press conference, said we have counted legally cast ballots three times and the results remain unchanged. Georgia allows for a recount that had been done. Georgia allows for a, a recanvass, which had been done. So when Jonathan Turley says on January 2nd, Donald Trump was just asking for a recount, surely he knows that recounts had been done and there was no provision under the law after the votes had been certified. As he pointed out in his op-ed from 2020, that's it. There are four steps, not five. So what is this all about? Unfortunately, this is about greed. He is a paid consultant on Fox News. He is paid to come on and talk about his opinions about things. Fox News does not pay consultants to come on and say things that are negative about Donald Trump. He doesn't pay them to come on to say things that undermines the rationale and the arguments of their viewership. So he is a GW University law professor with a long distinguished career of saying stuff about laws and teaching other people about laws. Yet in this moment, what he is doing is being a paid shill. And that's what we don't need right now. We don't need lawyers who are going on TV and just being political shills. But Jonathan Turley, you've appeared on Ask Anthony because you appear to not know the answer to this very basic question. So I will refer you to yourself in 2020. There are four stages and they had... At the time of this call, Donald Trump had gone through the, all of them and was asking Rathersberger, a government official, to violate his oath and overturn the election. And it wasn't the only piece of information, the only piece of evidence. It was one of dozens and dozens and dozens. So I appreciate that. If you'd like to participate in Ask Anthony, you can send me an email at uh, wienerwabc at gmail.com, at repwiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. Anthony D. Wiener at Facebook. I think that's also on Threads. That's the whole thing. And you can also, if you'd like to have feedback directly, you can always call on the Saturday show, The Middle. You can find that as a podcast in a separate feed. That's now a two-hour show because of all the news that we've been getting. And you can call up during that show and ask me questions directly, and I encourage you to do so. If you like what you've heard here, please share this, rank it, rate it, whatever you can do in your podcast platform, and let other people know about it. You've made the show a success, and for that, I'm very grateful. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.